a little bit about your spiritual path? Yeah, absolutely. I was um, raised in a very irreligious home. My parents were both sort of lapsed. My mom was a lapsed Catholic. My father was um, an irreligious Jew. They were both just totally uninterested in religion. And so naturally, like, I was obsessed with it. I was drawn to it. Um, We lived in a community outside of New York City that was um, very Jewish. And my friends um, were observant Jews, and I would often go with them to synagogue. And I just fell in love with the pageantry and the sense of community and belonging. Um, And it just befuddled my parents. Um, They couldn't figure out why I was this way. Um, And so, you know, I kind of took a circuitous path through my teens and 20s. I was what I have called um, sort of an agnostic witchy Jew. I was culturally Jewish, but um, was very interested in tarot and um, just all of the sort of like new age um, spiritual expressions that I could kind of find Um, And then, like, in my mid-20s, I had sort of um, what I think of now as, like, a quarter-life crisis. I um, had a health crisis that kind of threw me into um, just a reevaluating of everything, including my spiritual life. Um, And so because my what happened with my health was tied to sexuality, I I got human papillomavirus, which is very common and now we know a lot about. But, you know, 20 years ago, it was very scary um, and so all of my spiritual yearning kind of came to this point where I realized that the most important thing that I needed was guidance as to how to be a sexual adult, uh, a young woman in New York City, how to navigate that. Um, so I met sort of accidentally a group of Christians who came to Brooklyn to start a church, um, and I found myself just drawn into their atmosphere. They were like wonderful, hospitable people who were very interested in social justice and um, the environment. I mean, things that, you know, I, ha- I haven't really seen um, strongly in evangelical since. Um, but I found what I was looking for, which was a spiritual or a religious worldview that had very strict guidelines about sexuality. And sort of in, in my reaction to my, my mid-20s, um, I, chose, I chose that. Um, and that's how I sort of found myself in the evangelical church, um, oddly enough, in New York. So, and then it took me to Texas, which is kind of what the book is about. I left everything that I knew, um, my job, my band, I'm a musician, um, and got married because, you know, to be an evangelical Christian, in order to have sex, one must be married. So we got married and I moved to Houston, um, where I began a career as a, a worship leader, um, in evangelical churches. So that's kind of the, that's the story. That's where it begins, I guess. It's interesting that you chose evangelical Christianity and not say a more, a stricter form of Catholicism or Judaism from your family. What, what attracted you to um, evangelical Christianity? Well, you know, I mean, in the name, right? So in, you know, evangelical or evangelism is, about making new converts. I mean, so a huge driver in all of Protestant Christianity and in Catholicism too, but you see it more expressed in Protestantism is growing the church. So, you know, I responded to people's interest in me. I mean, frankly, like when I met 
these young Christians, they were artists, they were writers and thinkers um, doing the things I was doing in New York. And they were hospitable and welcoming to me in a way that I had not experienced from my peers. You know, they were, there was just no sense of competition among them. It was just a totally unique, almost utopian little community. Um, So, you know, there weren't, you know, there weren't Catholics or Jews who were, you know, like inviting me into their homes. And that's just kind of what happened. It's just kind of how it ended up. Um, I, you know, I did have Jewish friends um, who loved me and, you know, you know, were, you know, in my life, but they were certainly not evangelical um, in the sense that the Christians that I met were. And so I just kind of, that's what happened. That's kind of what what came into my life at a time when I was really looking. And so it all sort of felt like this must be it, you know, this must be the thing I'm looking for. Now at the time, the word evangelical, like today we think of evangelical with a capital E, it's a voting block. It's a political, you know, almost a political position. And in, you know, 2000, 2001, it wasn't that. And they certainly, you know, these young Christians certainly didn't present themselves like as evangelical Christians, but looking back like that, you know, that is what they were, and that is what I became. Um, And I actually became more zealous than they even ever were, kind of as my faith journey progressed. I think that we have heard a lot of negative things about some evangelicals. But for you, it was a chance, among other things, to be part of a community. I'm wondering if you could talk about that and also what you found being part of that community that you think was valuable? That's a great question. I, 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 the community thing was, was everything to me. Um, and, you know, I was a broke musician living in Brooklyn. And, you know, I, this is the first time that people my age like opened their homes and wanted to make me meals and came to my shows, you know, my band performed. And it really was just a sense of community and love and support of one another that just made them different to me than, than any other kind of group of people that I, that I had encountered um, in the city in my, in my young life. So, so, I mean, I think, you know, what I, I was really looking for a, a way to li- live and be in the world. Like my my family of origin, you know, other than their religious kind of non-religious background, I mean, was chaotic. Um, my parents had a very tumultuous, very painful divorce, and um, there was a lot of abuse and emotional abuse and, and things like that. And Um, and so I was just really looking for like a solid ground to stand on in my early twenties. Um, and so that community, that sense of, you know, of belonging and of welcoming was huge, was huge for me. And it, you know, and a sense of social justice. I mean, you know, at, at its core, Christianity, you know, is about feeding the hungry and caring for the poor, um, and the fatherless. And that first group of, of Christians that I encountered really were living that. Um, and so I just kind of assumed that they would all be like that. <laughs> and uh, that was, you know, a naive assumption, I guess. But um, yeah, you, it, was, it was. You said in your book intense. that you said you wanted to be a new person. And I think that's something that a lot of 
young people feel certainly, but not only young people. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that desire and why a religious community is a way to reinvent yourself? It's such a it's such an available way to reinvent yourself. Um, you know, you sort of scratch below the surface just slightly and you know, most religions will offer you a version of itself that that will insist that you remake your identity in its image. And for a lot of people, that is a is a sort of profound um, like relief to be able to relinquish a lot of control over, you know, I don't know what I think about X, Y, and Z, but this is the church that I've aligned my life with. And what they think about X, Y, and Z, I guess that's what I think, you know, and it's, it's a passivity that can be really appealing to someone, I think, especially in times of crisis. When I, I briefly started a Master of Divinity degree um, years ago, and a professor said that fundamentalism at the time, this was in 2010, I think it was, fundamentalism was growing across every world religion. So the versions of every world religion, or at least the Abrahamic religions, that we're growing are the versions that 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 insist on this, that insist that a person realign, reinvent. You know, it's not like an Easter Christmas kind of Christianity or a holiday kind of religion that was growing it or is growing. It was more, you know, the kind that I was looking for, um, you know, in my 20s. And, you know, of course, there's certainly there's certainly other ways to scratch that itch. Um, I would I would sort of say it's a it's a it's an itch that if one has one should question thoroughly certainly before you know aligning with you know a world changing or a world view changing you know religion or political view or or whatever um but it's very it can be very tempting you know especially in chaotic times which i think we certainly find ourselves in today mm-hmm. um so once yeah. you moved to texas and became part of this church and you went with a lot of hope and idealism about what that would be like. What did you find? You know, I found I found a lot of um, both and. I mean, I certainly found people who, you know, cared about the things I cared about, about making a difference in the world, about, you know, standing up for those who were voiceless and, you know, we were involved with, you know, anti-human trafficking efforts and, and things of that, of that sort. Um, but I also found a deep, deeply seated, um, patriarchy, right? I mean, so when we talk about the patriarchy, you know, the word patria means father and the, the patriarchy under which all the patriarchies rest is the church. I mean, the church really is the first patriarchy. Um, and so, you know, I was, I think, naive to think that I could sort of take my New York feminism and like, you know, maybe tamp down it, you know, tamp it down a bit, you know, and, and eventually I could be, I could be the person that I always was in this kind of religious Texan, you know, context. Um, but I found out that, you know, that patriarchy is not a joke. I mean, it's not, um, it's not something that, you know, went away with, you know, with the hist with history that, that, you know, I found the church to be 25, 30 years behind just culture, even in terms of language, like 
the, the, the term feminism was like a dirty word in um, the, the communities that I was a part of. So I was very surprised um, by that. But by then, you know, I had remade my life. Um, I had given up my life, my job, my, my friends in New York. I, my, I had married. I, I was committed to making this thing work. And I thought that if I you know, was a a woman and a leader and, you know, you know, was secretly like, you know, sending money to Planned Parenthood or always voting Democratic and just like not mentioning it. But eventually, like, I could eventually become myself and that I would be accepted by these people whom I'd spent years among. Um, And it really didn't turn out that way for me. It sort of um, became kind of the opposite that I found that I kind of was pushed out and pushed myself out when I could no longer kind of go along um with the way things were so that kind of came to a crisis point for me and and i i really had to reevaluate and make a move at some point in the book you talk about a leader uh, who instructs women on how to stay in marriages that are troubled Mm -hmm. Um, i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that You know, marriage, I mean, within my experience in the community that I was a part of at that time and and others I've been a part of, maintaining like a heterosexual marriage was a huge um, emphasis, a huge thing in this community. And so, I mean, not only just for for leaders, right? So women who were leaders who were leading what women were sort of, you know, able to lead a tremendous pressure to stay married, right? Like if you were not married, if you were divorced, I mean, divorce, you know, I would often hear people say, God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Like that's not an option. Um, though there, of course there were divorced women in the community, but, um, this class was, it was a marriage class. So it was designed to help, I guess just women, because of course there were only women in this class, um, try to, to be better versions of themselves. And the idea was that if, you know, if, if we were doing the work on our part, that, that ultimately, you know, that is what our marriages needed was that we were more selfless or we were better lovers or we were better listeners. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of, you know, women in that, in that class, myself included, who, whose problems in their marriages went much deeper than that. And, you know, the simplistic idea that it was like on us to like wear, you know, sexy lingerie at night as opposed to like sweatpants, you know, um, would have fixed the marriage was, I mean, that was a crazy idea. Um, But, you know, we were in it and and I was in it. And um, I just remember feeling like so, um, so abandoned, you know, at that time, because I really, I had kind of turned over like my will to this community in the sense that I believed that they had the best answers, you know, and what I was going through in my marriage at the time, I thought, well, I'll, I'll go to this marriage class. And I was actually doing music for it. I was leading worship for it. And I mean, it was just, it was devastating, you know, um, to, to get that message that, you know, that there is, there's nothing can't fix in a marriage, which is clearly not true. Um, and, um, can be incredibly dangerous, you know, a dangerous message for sure for women. We have this idea that 
churches are sanctuaries or, or refuges, yeah. um, places yeah. that are often associated with safety. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about whether or not you think that's true. And also, is safety something that we should even strive for in religious communities? Safety is absolutely something we should strive for in, in religious communities and, and churches and synagogues and mosques um, should be safe places. They absolutely should be. I mean, I think that's the, the, that is the, is the underlying understanding that people have that this is a sanctuary. I mean, the word sanctuary, right, means safety. So, you know, I, I think that this, this is such a great question because this is really something that I was wrestling with as I was finishing writing this book and, and some, I, you know, some of the things I was going through as I was finishing the book that didn't make it into the book were, were the ways that I was managing that question in my own life. And I always believed, you know, that was a big thing with my attraction to the church. I always believed, you know, these people are going to take care of me. This is a safe place. You know, I can come here with my gifts and my talents and I can, you know, make the sacrifices that I will make, you know, of my, you know, beliefs in many ways of, um, you know, of a secure income even, you know, to work in a church is certainly not, at least for me, it was not a lucrative uh, route to take. And that the exchange would be that I would be safe here, you know, and I found that to not be true for myself. I was not safe. Why um, not? in my body, in my spirit, you know, emotionally, I was not safe. So I think, you know, I think we have in, you know, not just in the United States, but I think in the world, we're sort of in a moment where we have a crisis of leadership, or we're looking at a crisis of the perception of leaders that we've had, you know, as trustworthy, as, you know, dependable, as not liars, for example, right? I mean, speaking broadly about, you know, politics. But, the same thing I think is happening in the church and, and I, and it needs to happen. Um, you know, and this is something I hope that my book can do is to start these conversations about, about what is safety and, and what is, you know, how are we making these spaces safe, you know, not just for women, but for queer people, for people of color, uh, you, you know, how are we making those spaces safe? Because they haven't traditionally been, um, and it's a, it's a particularly, I think, egregious thing when like spiritual authority covers over harm, you know, that's done. Um, and I know that that harm can have really lasting painful effects on, on those who, who suffer it. Do you think that there is a way to create more inclusivity in institutions like churches or religious communities? Absolutely, there is, and and there have been strides um, in that. So I'm a part of a, an Episcopal church, the Episcopal Church in Texas, um, the church that I uh, serve now that I sing uh, for their five o'clock service. So the Episcopal Church, from what I can see, is um, you know incredibly progressive, um, affirming of of both women and queer leadership and people of color. And and at, at what I see is that the Episcopal Church is making efforts and strides to um, sort of change that narrative. But even in the most liberal, you know, Protestant church, there is still just a history of that patriarchy that we we're talking about earlier. So, you know, I think it absolutely can be done. I think the way that it's done is through, you know, the, the governing bodies that the, that the denomination, um, you know, kind of used to, you know, to guide them. 
the problem I think we have in America is we have such a huge, um, you know, evangelical non-denominational, um, you know, population. So when we talk about, you know, evangelicals or we talk about the evangelicals who voted for Trump, you know, 81 percent of American white American evangelicals voted for Trump. You know, very often those are people who are participating in congregations that are not affiliated with a denomination. So to to change kind of like policy from the top down, it's very difficult because each church in that sense would have its own autonomy, you know, and could decide, you know, yes or no, whether to include include women and, you know, queer clergy. Um, so, you know, I think I think there is, of course, a way to make change. I mean, I believe change is possible, but I think it has to come from um, it has to come from leadership. It has to come from a real desire in whatever, you know, governs the, the body um, that, that change is made. And I think, you know, I have a lot of hope. Um, I have a lot of hope for, for millennials. I think that, you know, the generation younger than me, I'm a Gen Xer, um, are absolutely clear on these things um, and clear about, you know, their refusal to participate in spaces from what I've seen, at least in, in you know, religious kind of or ex-religious circles, their refusal to, to participate in spaces that are not affirming of their values. And, and that will send a clear message to the church. You know, if people stop coming, um, you know, things will have to change. Um, I don't know if it'll get to that, but I, I hope I hope we do see that change. You also talk a lot about relationships to women and how those relationships have sustained you both in religious communities and also in friendships. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, my relationships with women, um, you know, just completely sustained me through the crisis that I kind of write about in this book, which was both a crisis of my faith, you know, feeling like this thing I built my life on, I couldn't believe it anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't really stand behind it anymore. And then my marriage at the same time um, underwent a similar deconstruction. Um, so, you know, in it, in that, and through that, I, um, a very small group of women, you know, two or three women in my life, um, I could be myself with, and I could bring, you know, all of these doubts and these fears and these, um, these complications of what I was doing and what I was thinking about doing. Um, and, you know, those conversations that I had, um, I think kept, kept me sane and still today do, you know, so I write about, um, my experience in 12 step, 12 step recovery, uh, for relationships. So I have a therapist who, because I tell her that I have this romantic obsession with the man I'm not married to, she tells me I should go to a 12 step recovery group for love addiction. And, and so I kind of reluctantly go and, and through that experience, I met a woman who, you know, has just become like a mentor and a friend to me through this whole season and who accepted me as someone coming out of a religious worldview and sort of unsure of what I was coming into, you know. And, and so that acceptance, I think, allowed me and continues to allow me to um, to be gentle with myself um, as I kind of figure these things out and, and I will always be figuring them out. I think that's kind of the, that's the answer to the question, right? Is that there is no answer, that it's all a process. So why did you write this book now? And what did you hope to communicate in writing your story? I wrote it out of 
just this urgency that, um, you know, when I look back on it, it really, it does sort of befuddle me, honestly, because I wrote it as I was going through most of this. So the timeline is 2015 to 2017. And I drafted the first draft of this book I completed in the summer or no, in at the end of 2016. So, I mean, it was really like close to the events that, that were unfolding. And I just felt this just this, this urgency that um, in order to understand myself, I had to make it into something. I'm an artist. I'm a musician. I'm, I've always done this. You know, I think Joan Didion said, well, you know, I write to understand what I think um, or something to that effect. And I, I think that I was really trying to gain some understanding. And I knew that by writing on one hand, that would help me. And on the other hand, I was feeling just the beginnings of this kind of the, the the tremors of what I think is happening now with um, what is called now the ex-evangelical movement and church too, and the me too movement, um, you know, he- hearing from other people who had gone through similar things that I had in, in religious settings and just feeling like, you know, it was time to talk about this. And, and there wasn't a book that I could point to that um, I could see myself in in terms of a woman who had chosen a religious life and, and then chosen to, you know, find a way to keep the parts that she, she wanted and leave the parts she didn't, you know, which is sort of what I, I think um, best describes where I am now. Um, but I, I definitely felt, you know, it's, it was kind of an, ur- it was an urgency that almost felt like how I, how I felt when I had my daughter, I have, I have one child, she's 13 now, but it was the strangest thing that I was just utterly focused. Like I knew that I wanted this um, and, and I was going to see it through. And that's, um, that's really what started the writing of, of the book, this sense of urgency. Um, And, you know, as far as what I hope for it, I, I hope it opens conversations for, you know, for women and, and other people who have been traditionally marginalized by the church um, that they can, can see that that their voice and their story matters that they're not alone um and that you can make you know you can make a religious life for yourself even when you know the patriarchy or the traditional structure tells you that you're not you don't fit in um you know i'm very like adamant about this that like i if i choose to stay i will stay and i will bring my politics and i will bring my um you know my feminism you know, I have queer Christian, Christian friends who, you know, are in the same position or, you know, feel like, why should I lose my faith? Like, why should I have to give this up? Um, you know, and, and on us, it is, you know, the, the onus is on us to find communities that reflect our values. But those communities are out there. Um, and so I think that is also a big part of what I'm hoping or what I was hoping for um, when I was writing this book, that that it would it would communicate to people like you know you don't have to give it up um give all of it up but you do have to take care of yourself um um, these are great questions so you know i just i mean i just hope that that it touches people and that it you know like i said i hope ultimately that that the book makes people feel less alone in the world get up get up Mm -hmm. 